Welcome to the Faith Today podcast. I'm Karen Stiller. And I'm Bill Fladeris. So you had Daniel Whitehead on the podcast. What was that like? Yes, that was good. So he is CEO of Sanctuary Mental Health Ministries, which is located in Vancouver. They help churches do better in the area of mental health. Yeah, we've had, I think I remember seeing them in the magazine a couple times. We have a piece about their course that churches can use the sanctuary course in the November issue. And it was great to have Marku Costamo in the September issue. Yeah. And let me tell you that I was curious about the course. And so I registered and I've been working through it myself as an individual. And it is really good. And Daniel likened it to sort of an alpha type course. And I I think that's true. Like it's very accessible, friendly video, very, I was going to say casual. That's not really the right word, but maybe accessible about issues that can be kind of tough. So it's, I do think people should check that out. Yeah. And a lot of us are maybe not super comfortable with mental illness as a topic. So it feels a little scary. So to do it casually is probably what we want, right? Exactly. So I think this conversation with Daniel is helpful to kind of push into that. And yeah, I'm hoping that people will leave it encouraged and maybe check out their material. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Oh, thank you, Karen. It's a real joy to be with you. On the bio on the Sanctuary website, it says that you know the good, the bad, and the ugly approaches to mental health in the church. And that really jumped out at me. And we want to land at good Mm. eventually in this conversation. But first, tell us a little bit about what you mean by the bad and the ugly. Sure. I mean, I I was uh, in pastoral ministry for about 10 years before I, I guess it felt like an enforced break, but it, it was enforced by me, but it felt like it was a collaboration between me and God. But I was essentially a burnt out pastor and didn't know it. I had no idea that I was struggling. And... Uh, I remember my wife turned to me one day and said, I can't remember the last time I saw you smile. And I realized in that moment when I was confronted with that reality, I thought, yeah, I don't think I've felt any emotion for the last year. Now that the scary part is that I was able to be a pastor for a year who was numbed to what was happening. And, And that was really because my emotional resources had been exhausted I'm not here to to blame anyone. I think, you know, well-intended people do the best they can. But for me, in hindsight, what I realized was there was a lot of implicit pressure that wasn't conducive to my well-being. When I reflect back on my experience of leading a church for a number of years as a young man, I realized that I would guess 80% of pastoral issues were directly relatable to mental health. And there were many voices in that sort of church environment from people that were saying things like, well, the answer is just prayer. You know, we just need to pray and we just need to fast. And people would then say, I found this this thing on the internet that would help this person, this article or this prayer that someone prayed. So people are looking for answers, quick, simple answers to what are really complex issues. And and I think about individuals that I were in the church that I led who were you know crippled with various mental illnesses and a well-intended church actually did a really lousy job of helping people make sense of those experiences. So is a very common response that is bad, the sort of spiritualizing of it that, you know, we're going to pray, you need to 
yeah. get better at your quiet time. You got to come to a Bible study. Is that the sort of clumsy responses we give? Yeah, I think so. I mean, one of my good friends, John Swinton, who's an ambassador for us, he's a practical theologian, talks about lazy theodicy that exists in the church, just lazy ways we try and frame why bad things are happening. And one particularly lazy theodicy that, that seems to come up again and again is, yeah, just read the Bible and pray more. That's the answer. It's not like reading the Bible and praying is a bad thing. Um, those things can take place. Although I would say for someone in the midst of a mental health crisis, they may not be ready to read certain parts of scripture. So they probably need the community to help them work out what they're able to hold at that time. There are certain passages in the Old Testament that would be very hard for someone in the midst of depression or darkness to hold and other parts would be more comforting. So I think that's where the community has a role to play in curating and helping and discipling people in the midst of crisis. So yeah, I do think that. I think that one dimensional idea that we just over-spiritualize the subject, we reduce it to a purely spiritual issue. We certainly wouldn't say it is not a spiritual issue. We would just say there is complexity to this and, and God has made us to be this integrated relational holistic person with a, a biological self, a psychological self, a social self, and a spiritual self. And all of those pieces intermingle, and that's how God's made us. So one-dimensional answers are not going to cut it for a lot of people. Daniel, speaking to pastors, and I've heard and know a lot of struggling pastors right now who would say they are having mental health struggles, whether and Partly, maybe it's exhaustion, you know, mm. emerging from this uh, weird and long time we've been in of difficulties. So I'd love for you to speak to pastors uh, specifically, if you would, and also circle back around if you're willing and tell us what helped you. Yeah, my heart genuinely breaks for pastors going through the, the pandemic and we hope coming out of it. I mean, I, I'm happy to say we're out of it, but... Yeah, my heart really breaks. I heard of an organization in another country that really was trying to seize the opportunity to point out how bad churches are at mental health care. And we implored them not to do that. We said pastors are at their lowest ebb. They need our encouragement. They need our support. They don't need us telling us telling them what they're not doing. And many pastors are struggling to carry the burden of expectation and responsibility in a situation that is unprecedented. So, you know, if we know anything about the human brain and we've learned more about the brain in the last 20 years than in the rest of human history put together but if we know about this organ that god has fearfully and wonderfully made that in, in a sense is an organ that holds that is like the centerpiece for many other organs like it connects our bodies and, and our spirits and there's a ton of research on that but that organ can be stressed and it can be damaged and i think many people have been through incredibly stressful times have been forced to a place of languishing and there is an after effect to that and very often the tools that we need i mean we could need a raft of tools it could be that we need certainly to talk to a doctor or to, and to talk to a psychologist or a therapist and we will need possibly medicine and nutrition and patterns of rest like sabbath these are all aspects but one key aspect I needed was space and I needed safe people. I needed people around me that I could really own the difficult parts of my story with. And so the role of a spiritual community, and, and actually for me in the midst of that as a pastor, I, it actually wasn't the spiritual community. It was um, some friends of mine who weren't Christians, who weren't part of a church. And I realized there was a vulnerability and trust in this group that used to meet in a pub every Sunday afternoon 
that they would just talk about everything, the most difficult things, things that I'd never heard people in the church talk about. And in some senses, it was that learning that I'm like, I, th I thought to myself, we can do better. The church has so much to offer if we can find ways to have difficult conversations. So I think a key part of my own recovery was finding people I could talk to about it and giving my myself space and time to recover, which ultimately leads to healing. And uh, if we get too fixated on curing over recovery and healing, I think they're two slightly different things. So yeah, people and space are important for me. It really strikes me, Daniel, that you had your most, it sounds like, authentic kind of naked conversations with people who weren't part of the church. Mm. Do we still pretend too much? Are we still not being honest enough in the church community? I, I mean, I hasten to add, as I, I want to stress, I love the church. I, you know, I'm a, I've, I've done theological studies and I'm uh, a pastor. My wife's a pastor. I preach regularly. So I'm not here to bash the church, but I know that really that feeling of with a subject like mental health, where do we even begin? And, and uh, I'm not thinking about, um, yeah, for me, it's easy now, but for someone who's pastoring a little church in the middle of nowhere, as I used to, it's a really hard conversation to even know how to start the conversation. So yeah, I, I suspect that many of us are not having, it's not that we don't want to, but we, we maybe don't feel able to have the conversations. And, and very often that starts with a leader being honest about their own struggles and, you know, as we know, the minute you, you do that, you're, you are making yourself vulnerable. And uh, I think of Brené Brown, who says, you know, vulnerability is good. It's good for us and it's good for the community. But if, you, if you're vulnerable with the wrong people, they will use that as a weapon against you. And so I definitely know that pressure as a, as a pastor. Not that anyone implicitly did it, but just feeling like I need to hold this together. I need to present this front. And of course, in doing that, I was disempowering people from owning their own real, real stories. And actually, uh, mm. if I could have found the ability to do that, maybe it would have invited others to do the same instead of perpetuating this idea that just keep up appearances and keep going. Yeah, I think that is really tough. Like I'm, I'm married to a minister and I think, and this is probably going to sound cynical, but I, <laughs> I think that my experience has been that people say they want you to be vulnerable mm. and real but maybe not <laughs> maybe they yeah. don't actually want that from their pastors so what how do you respond to that yeah no i i think it's true it's funny actually i've just i'm meant to be writing a book at the moment i'm, I'm sure i'll get around to it before it has to be in but i've been asked to write a book on some barriers that prevent people from talking about mental health and i think there are some real clear implicit barriers and sometimes our like our theologies or our way of seeing the world are just too simplistic and it's not that we don't desire to have this simple faith, but this is a really complex subject. So I, I kind of feel like the idea, the notion of vulnerability sounds great, but the reality of it is hard because it's very liminal mm. and gray. And there's a whole, there's a faith journey. There's a journey of literally stepping into something. And I'm not sure where this goes. I'm not sure if, you know, I'll recover. Um, and I'm not sure how long it will take me. And, and that is a really scary subject for some people. If, you know, I, I, I certainly think that in the, in the pandemic, these are just my own thoughts, but what I saw was a lot of people trying to make sense of a really difficult and complicated situation. And I'd have absolute empathy for where some people land in trying to make sense of it. But 
what I often heard behind the back of that was people just struggling with this idea of how could a good God allow this? And, and if he can, what does that mean for me? And, and what does that mean for my own well-being? So I saw a lot of what I thought mental health languishing, which is language that Sanctuary gives the church to talk about this, and people trying to simplify or, or, or make the subject much more simple when it was actually really complex and complicated. So I, yeah. I think I see that a lot. I think I see a lot of people trying to, trying to hold on to it, trying to nail it down. And, and you know, vulnerability is fine if it's this, but actually vulnerability looks like just taking the lid off it and letting it go and seeing in faith what happens. And, and that's scary. Yeah. And oh, was the term you used earlier, lazy theodicy? Is that yeah. what you said? Yeah, that's John Swinton. Just a quote. It's not my quote. Okay. It's yeah. Well, it really is a good one because I think that, you know, when I peel back the layers of this in my own mind, I think I land at who do I think God is yeah. and what do I think God can do for me <laughs> when I am struggling in this way? And if I think it's just sitting on the couch with me, mm. that challenges me. And it challenges my idea of what answered prayer looks like, for example, yes. or what, I guess, what others coming alongside looks like as well. Yeah. You know, in some respects, I think that's absolutely true. But you know, obviously, the incarnation teaches us that the presence is absolutely critical to us making sense mm -hmm. of who we are in our lives. And, and so once again, it's it's kind of it's not to say that presence is always the answer. Sometimes we need intervention. You know, sometimes we need God to step in and, and bring healing. You know, if someone's terminally ill, we, you know, we pray for that. And yet in mental health, a big component that the church can offer, like I, I often lament and say, if only there was an organization at the center of every city, town and village with a group of people that were primed and ready to offer compassionate care and support, to offer a bigger vision of life than just what you're seeing at this time. If only that group existed, we could really help some people in their mental health because spiritual friendship has a vital role to play in recovery. And I think it's important yes. the church understands that if the church can do that and let doctors be doctors and therapists be therapists, but if we can do that, we'll actually potentially change the world. And we'll certainly, I think, show a lot of people what a loving, good God looks like who walks with people in the midst of crisis. Yeah, well, it. I mean, I'm sh obviously you meant to do this as you were speaking. I thought that should be the church, of it's course. The church. That should be the church. So how can we be better? And I know you, and maybe this is where we start talking about sanctuary and the wonderful course that you folks put together, which I'm about halfway through. Tell us what you can help us do better and yeah, just how we can be that kind of community. Yeah, so I mean, the, the the wonderful thing about Sanctuary is um, it's a twelve year old nonprofit. I've been leading it for six years. I, I'm based in Vancouver, Canada, and when it was founded, it was founded by someone who had this real interdisciplinary approach to life. Uh, the Reverend Dr. Sharon Smith is our founder, and, and Sharon was an occupational therapist for twenty years. She did two theology degrees. She got ordained in the Church of England. She did a PhD on the intersection of spirituality and schizophrenia. And also about 15 years ago, her husband, Alex, died by suicide. Mm -hmm. So Sharon brings this like clinical, theological, priestly, research-based, lived experience piece. And all of these strands together help us hold the subject in a new way. So Sanctuary has created resources or creates resources that help churches to have what seem like very complicated and complex conversations, but in a really curated and safe way. 
So we've designed the Sanctuary course, which I kind of say it's like a mental health alpha course. It's an eight session course, film based. It follows a similar format, but it's really all about how we integrate our faith and mental health. And, and at the end of that process of doing it, really a community should have a shared framework and a shared language and should kind of understand what is the role of the church and what is not the role of the church and to get a bigger vision for what the role of the church is, which is to offer spiritual care and friendship. So the Sanctuary course is the main thing we do. There's a, a bunch of other resources we've created and we are creating and launching in the months ahead, including some uh, pretty cool ones uh, um, that we're doing in the next year with some other organizations. But really our role is to help the church gain some confidence, gain the framework, gain the language to know what to do and what support to offer. Do you have a sense of how many churches have taken the course or is it, it's pretty new, I think. Yeah, it's, I mean, the Sanctuary course launched at the end of 2018. So it's hard for us to track how many churches. uh, And there's a whole boring thing I could say about websites and how you build them. (laughs) So I won't talk about that. But we know that 200,000 people have been through the Sanctuary course. Oh, that's fantastic. And that's across 60 countries, Protestant, Catholic. So yeah, it's in some senses, it's done remarkably well with a relatively small team in a relatively short space of time. But we, we very much feel as an organization, without intending to sound self-congratulatory, but we very much feel by the grace of God that it is for such a time as this that Sanctuary exists. Because our model of creating online-based resources that anyone anywhere can access really led us up to the beginning of the pandemic. We, we, we created a whole infrastructure to do that. And then the pandemic hit. And then we saw six times the downloads in the space of two months than in the previous two years. So we just suddenly saw this conversation that churches wanted to have. And, and we could see the searches on Google that people were searching for. And it's, what does God think about depression? What does the Bible say about mental illness? And we saw all these. So I think, yeah, by God's grace, we feel... Like we, we're here to offer a resource to the church, which is completely free in this, in this moment of need, in this historical moment that we're in. Yeah. Well, it, it's such a good description when you said it's alpha-like. I would agree with that. It's very story-based. It's lovely to look at. It's well shot. It's, it has people being very honest in it, mm. which is what really struck me because it does take – I think, a certain amount of courage to say, I am struggling with this, or I have struggled with that, and to share their journeys so, so honestly. And I wonder if you could speak to that role of vulnerability. We talked about it Mm. earlier a little bit, but there is also, there's great power in being willing to share your story, and that helps make a safe space for others. Yeah, absolutely. So I, again, I think when we draw these lines, people like me, I'm kind of paid to think about these things. So I don't assume everyone else does. But when you think about our Lord hanging on a cross naked, about the most vulnerable a, a person could be and crying out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he gets no answer. And in that thought alone, we see a model of leadership. We see a, a, a hard, difficult model of leadership. Now, We don't have to be nailed to a cross, but to be vulnerable in front of others as leaders can be a real gift and can actually bring life to people. Because if you're sitting there and all you've heard is stories of how people were were broken or what did have problems and now they're healed, and you're sitting there having lived with bipolar disorder for 15 years and struggling with your medication, it can be pretty discouraging. But if someone can stand up and say, in that place of vulnerability, I'm lost. 
And I just don't know what's going to happen, but I'm still here. There's such a powerful, weird, weirdly a hope-filled message in there for people to say, yes. oh, I'm not alone. And actually, it's not that this is an invalid experience. This is a very valid experience, theologically speaking. And God can be found in the darkness if we're willing to look in different ways and if we're willing to wait. And so to give people space to sit with them in those vulnerable places, to model vulnerability is a, a very biblical thing. We see that in the Psalms of Lament. 40% of the Psalms, just people lamenting before God in community. Many of them were, were sung as they walked up to Jerusalem. So I think we see this modeled in scriptures, but, but very often we, uh, for whatever reason, culturally speaking, we miss it and we need to have it pointed out to us again once more, I think. Daniel, I am emerging out of a sort of sad, bad time in my own life. And one thing I noticed, two groups of friends, if I can be so, mm. you know, mathematical, one, there were a few people who could keep companionship with me. Mm. And there was another who I realized, oh, I've been too sad for too long for you. Mm. <laughs> and I'm going to hear from you and again in a couple months. And, and that's okay. Like you mm. can't sort of be with me right now. Like it just felt pretty clear to me. And which made me think back to times I have done that too, where mm. I've thought, oh, I've avoided the call from the friend that I know is going to you know, yeah. be a drag or whatever. And I think it's just made me realize the preciousness of walking with someone without having to give any answers, without, you know, being okay to not have answers. I think that's part of the problem. Yeah. Part of people struggle with not being able to fix things. Absolutely. And, there, and there's something very costly about being willing to sit with someone in those very dark places or in those very difficult places where there aren't any obvious answers. Uh, I had a revelation of this last summer when a good friend of ours died and our pastor was away. So she called on me. My wife is a pastor too. And uh, so we went to a hospital bed and sat with our friend as she was grieving and lamenting the fact she wasn't going to see her nine-year-old daughter grow up. Oh, and boy. That's a very difficult space to be in with someone you care about. Yeah. But in sitting with her and in praying with her and, and my last words to her, not that I'd planned them, but as we left the room just before she was sedated, just two, two or three days before she died, I said, thank you for being my friend. And I think spiritual friendship has the ability to change the world. And, and we yes. see that in John fifteen fifteen, Jesus says, I no longer call you servants. I call your friends. Uh, but friendship, true friendship is costly. There is a cost to be counted if you really enter into that place with people. And some people can't do it. I, I kind of would have some empathy for people who don't feel they can stay in that place because it's too painful for them. But yeah. some of us can. And uh, mm -hmm. we have to count the cost and be willing to do it to offer hope to people even in the midst of their darkest hour. Those who can should. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if you're called to it. It's like a vocation. You know, you... You know, often in the mental health conversation, I've heard people say, well, what about the martyrs? They didn't do self-care. They didn't. I'm like, but they were called to something. It's not like, you know, so you, you have to be called to these difficult things. And if you're not graced for it, it's probably wise for you not to enter in too closely. Mm. But it'd be great if we could find language to say, you know, I can't go there with you right now because I'm struggling and I'm so sorry, but yes. I just, I need a bit of, that would be kind of helpful, wouldn't it? To go, oh, I, I don't feel abandoned so much as, this person's struggling and it might actually enter, create an opportunity for you to support them in this kind of 
we're both struggling in different ways. So I think finding language for this in the church cannot happen soon enough. And, yeah. and the sanctuary course gives the church language to talk about where we're at, how we're doing, where we are in our mental health at any one point. I would say that we do not know conclusively that the martyrs did not experience or exercise self-care. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's something, maybe you want to write a paper on it and submit it to me. It's, <laughs> a, it's not something I thought about, but I know that they were called to something. It's like everyone is called to be a martyr, but, you know, but yeah. But no, that's a fascinating thought. Say more. Yeah, but, <laughs> hmm. Well, I would actually like to ask you, Daniel, about another piece that I took off your bio that just fascinated me, that you studied the role of majority world theological perspectives in shaping a theology of mental health. Can you give us sort of a brief summary yeah. of that? I, I think that's so interesting. Yeah, well, the plan is for some of this to feature in the book that I am going to Good. write, allegedly. Um, let's see if I do, <laughs> if I manage it. But no, I yes. So, I, you know, essentially, it's rooted in this idea that in a predominant in a Western culture, you know, I was born and raised in, in England. I moved to Canada eight years ago. But in a having grown up in a Western culture, having spent time in other majority world cultures for for reasonably good amounts of time in my life as well, I realised that in the West we're very often shaped with this idea that independence is the ultimate goal of the human project. Like if you can raise a child to be independent, stand on their own two feet, if they become a successful leader or business person, and we always have this narrative around they're independent, they're on their own, they're taking on the world. These are our heroes that we're often conveyed to us. And yet the Bible portrays a very different picture of what the purpose of a human being is, which is not independence, but it's interdependence. It's this idea of being myself, yes, being a person, but a person made for relationships and a person defined for relationships and a person who needs to make sense of who they are in the light of relationships. When we talk about relationships, I think we talk about God, self, others, and, and creation, everything that God's made. So in stewarding those relationships, we kind of find out that we're a person in the, in, the, in the messy part of that. And yet in the West, I would suggest more often than not, it's framed as this kind of individual against the world. And many majority world cultures have a lot to teach us philosophically about what a person is. And so if you take Ubuntu theology, made famous by the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu, this idea that I am because we are, it's like, I can only make sense of who I am because I'm part of this community. And if you look at an emerging indigenous theology, Ray Aldred, um, who's at Vancouver School of Theology, he's doing some fascinating work in making sense of, um, yeah, indigenous perspectives and what that has to teach us about the relational nature of the self. So those are the things that I found most interesting. That actually, there is a framework for understanding mental health care and supporting the other in the midst of crisis that just exists in some majority world frameworks that is a real, can be a real struggle in many Western contexts. Wow, that sounds fascinating. Well, we will all be waiting for the book, Daniel. Oh, no. Do you, is there an actual <laughs> deadline that you're trying to meet? Yeah, next summer, next uh, end of next June. So I, I need to get cracking. Okay. If I was a prolific writer, then maybe. If I was like John Stackhouse, who can probably write five books in a week, I'd be okay, but... <laughs> We'll see. We'll see if I can do it. He'd be thrilled to hear you say that, oh, I think. well, it's true. So if so much of healing can take place in community with the other, by walking beside people, by being with other people and being transparent, the church would seem an ideal place for healing. So as we wrap up, Daniel, can you 
paint a word picture for us of what a healthy church for all of us experiencing all that we will with our mental health throughout our life would look like? Yeah, I think uh, I think a healthy church would look like a space where you can bring your whole self to the church all of the time, a space where a subject like mental health is talked about openly, a space where we have a regular way of talking about this, just just part innate part of the culture. We talk about mental health and well-being in the same way that we talk about the weather. I think that's the the ultimate dream and and ultimately that the church would be famous for being the safest place to turn to at a point of crisis imagine if there was a day when people would say if someone's going through a crisis they say hey you should go to that church because they really know how to care for people and they really understand this and they will offer you community and friendship in your darkest hour i think that's the the ultimate outlandish goal dream that we have but i really believe the church can do it like i genuinely do I think we have everything we need to do it if we just have the right language and framework to hold it. Oh, Daniel, thank you. I love that idea of the church being famous for that. That is a beautiful thought. Thank you, Karen. Well, yeah, we're going to keep working on it. And thank you for running the course. It's, it's great that you're going through it. Thank you for listening. Check out more podcasts and subscribe to Faith Today magazine for free at faithtoday.ca. This podcast is produced by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. If you enjoyed it, please rate or share it.